And as you're being seated, let us begin to worship in hearing from God's word today from Luke chapter 20. If you would turn there with me. Luke chapter 20. We'll be in a couple of other places as well. We are continuing our march through Luke. And today we find ourselves starting in Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 19. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version of the Bible. But if you will listen carefully, because this is God's word to you this morning. Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him, that is Jesus, at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able, in the presence of the people, to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's now pray and ask for God's blessing in our passage today. Oh, Jesus, we have before us a challenging passage today. And I pray that we would look at your word, that our hearts would be ready to receive it, that we might be able to follow you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we approach the Thanksgiving and Christmas time in our culture, the generally and commonly held rule of family gatherings, in order to have a peaceful family gathering anyway, is to avoid just two topics. And those are religion and politics. <laughs> Jesus is not bound by those rules, and he is willing to dive into them. Today, I think probably more than we've seen in quite some time, politics has become an incredibly divisive issue. Could be a lot of different reasons for that. We have access to a lot more information than we used to. We have millions of opinions that sort their way all through the web, and it's so hard to figure out which one is right. So-and-so listened to this podcast. So-and-so saw this tweet. Another person saw this news broadcast. How are we supposed to respond to the government? And how are we supposed to respond to each other when we find ourselves on opposite sides of the aisle? I think Jesus endeavors to answer those questions for us in this passage. It doesn't have the explicit answers that we would like to for all of our questions, but I think the implications that Jesus lays out for us in this passage and in other places that we'll take a look at 
will help us cut through a lot of the noise and a lot of the tension and anger that we see in today's politics. Because at the end of the day, the governor of governors, the king of kings, is Jesus. He is the one that we have our loyalty to. But where does Jesus stand? If you look at attempts to draw portraits of Christ online, you'll see some very, very different portraits, mostly drawn in the image of the person who's trying to paint it. You can find pictures of Jesus that paint him as a radical flower power socialist or a card-carrying member of the NRA. We like to cast Jesus in either of our sides. But as one commentator put it, and I think points well, he points us to Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. We don't have to turn there. I'll just tell the story. Israel is on its way to the promised land. God has told them to go up against Jericho, and they are afraid. Suddenly, the commander of Israel's army at that moment, his name is Joshua, he gets a visit from an angel of the Lord. And he asks him a question and says, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And the angel of the Lord, God himself, says, no. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. So the question that we're going to ask ourselves today is not, is God on our side or is he on another side? The question is, are you on God's side? That's what we're going to look at today. And we're going to look at this passage in our usual two points. You can see the outline has been tucked into your bulletin on the back side of the prayer guide. And we're going to look at the first point, which is Jesus tells us to obey him. Jesus tells us to obey him. And the second point is we obey by properly, note that word, honoring God and government. How that's going to work? Let's see. So first we begin. Jesus tells us to obey him. Let's remind ourselves as to where we are in this passage. Jesus has just triumphantly rode into Jerusalem. He is, the people around him are proclaiming that he is the Messiah, the promised one who is going to deliver Israel and indeed the rest of the world from its trouble. He has been, Jesus has been teaching in the temple. He has shown that he has the authority to reform worship as he has thrown out animals and the money changing services in the temple and does so because he is on a mission from God. Indeed, he is God himself the heir to the throne. And anyone who does not submit to him will be crushed by him. That was the challenging passage that we looked at last time. Jesus illustrated that by telling a parable that didn't cast the religious leaders in that great of a light. And they recognized that. And you see here in verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests, they tried to get at Jesus earlier, but they failed. They tried to trap him in an either-or question, and Jesus flipped the script on them and showed them that and trapped them in that same question. So they're defeated. A frontal assault's not going to work. So now we get into verse 20. Let's let someone else do our dirty work. Let's get some spies going. So they send them to go and pretend to be sincere. 
And they start buttering up Jesus and trying to put him off his game. Try to make him think that he is dealing with some folks that are really sympathetic to him in the hopes that they can trip him up. And the way that they're going to do that is they're going to try to trap Jesus using the same either or question as before. And their hope is is they can get him to slip up so they can turn him over to the governor. Notice how they're thinking about authority. It's like, well, we've got this Jesus guy. We've got a really powerful empire. We think this powerful empire, this governor, can take Jesus down. So let's try to see if we can convince him to fall into a trap. It's worth noting that the Jews didn't have power of execution at that time. That was reserved for the Romans. So the hope would be that they could get him to fall. So how are they going to do that? Well, they're going to put him in this dilemma. And they ask him this question. And they say, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? A question about tax policy. A great unifier, as always. Here, taxes were not any more popular back then than they are today. In fact, they were even less popular then. Israel having to pay a tax to their Roman oppressors is just a reminder that they are indeed ruled over by a Gentile force. Something no one was a fan of. And here, by them saying, all right, are we supposed to give taxes or not? They think that they've got Jesus trapped between a rock and a hard place. Because you see, if Jesus says, yes, pay your taxes to Caesar, well, all these people that have been gathering around Jesus in the hopes that he was going to be the Messiah, the one who was going to cast off the Romans, well, Jesus is going to be immediately unpopular, talking about taxes that way. He'll be seen as a sellout to Rome, and all of his followers will vanish away, so they think. But if Jesus takes the other option and says, no, you don't have to pay taxes to Caesar. Well, now he is running up against the evil empire. And trust me, they will strike back. This will be the occasion. Bless you for those of you that got that reference. So this is an opportunity that they have to capture Jesus. Either he's going to throw away all of his following that he's built Or he's going to run up against the empire. And the empire is not going to treat advice to not pay taxes well. They would be very happy to not get rid of They would be very happy to get rid of him. But it's interesting. Even in their asking him this question. Even though they mean it for an evil purpose. It's interesting that they're asking him what they should do about their taxes. In some way, they are already affirming his authority to authoritatively answer that question. Even as they're looking to Rome, they're looking at Jesus, silently acknowledging that he has some sort of authority. It's kind of like my son is one and a half now, and when he reaches out to touch something that he shouldn't, and I say, no touch, and he'll look at me, and then he'll look over at his mother. clear indication of who he believes is a true authority in his life. The one that you look to to answer these questions in a final way is the one that you perceive to have that authority. And here they are looking at Jesus and saying, all right, are we to pay taxes or are we to not? Now, 
as usual, Jesus flips the script on them. It looks like he's only going to make one of two answers. But instead, Jesus takes it and makes a third. He asked them for a coin, a Roman coin, a denarius is what it was called. You had to pay your taxes in Roman money. And if you were going to have business exchanges with the Roman Empire, you needed to use their currency. So Jesus asks them, does anyone have a Roman coin? And someone's able to pull a coin out of their pocket. As one scholar had pointed out, at that moment, the argument's been won. If you're going to use Caesar's coins, why do you think you get to get out of Caesar's prices? How can you use Caesar's goods and not expect to pay Caesar's taxes? The fact that they were perfectly willing to try to ask Jesus this question and the fact they already have Roman coins clinking in their pocket shows where their loyalties lie. Anyway, they pull out the coin and he says, whose face is on it? And they say, well, Caesar's face is on it. Caesar's goods. And then he tells them, To, as it's been famously said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Jesus takes this either or question and completely reframes it. The way that they were looking at it, as uh, commentators helped me see, is they were looking at this as loyalty is either or. You can either be loyal to God or you can be loyal to the government. And what Jesus says and flips it around is that loyalty to God includes loyalty to the government, properly maintained. So we're going to see about what that means. It does have limit. But nonetheless, this is something we need to sit with for a moment. We have a very complicated arrangement with authority, especially those of us in America. It's hard for us to hear that the government has a place in our lives. But it does. Jesus is affirming this. He doesn't say, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but render to things that are to God the things that are God's. It's and. It's both. God in this, Jesus, who is God, affirms a place for the government in our lives, including the power to tax. Butter. But this is something that God has ordained. That's what we're going to look at in our second point, as we obey by properly honoring God and the government. Here, this is something that Jesus has affirmed. As one commentator noted that government is not a necessary evil that we have set up, but this is something that God has, in fact, ordained for our good. Now, Jesus, in this passage, does not explicitly state What do you do when Caesar is opposed to God? We have other passages for that. And for one of those passages, we are going to take a look at Romans 13. So turn there with me. Romans 13. Got a little ahead of myself. We will take a look at what to do when the government is opposed to God in a second. But we're going to see what are the things that are rendered to Caesar's. Is it just taxes, or might there be more? Romans 13, starting in verse 1, says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. 
Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Because rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what's good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. That's a lot, isn't it? Taxes, respect, obedience. It's tough. What if we don't like it? What if we don't like the guy? We're called to pray for them. We're called to pay our taxes when they're owed, to render revenue and render respect. This is a hard thing to do, but this is something we've even seen in Scripture. Way back in 1 Samuel, David has been appointed king. He's known it for many, many chapters. But Saul is still king, and Saul's trying to kill David. And David is fleeing from Saul for several chapters. And then David has his opportunity to kill Saul, but he doesn't take it because he says, this is the Lord's anointed. It's not my task to go and chop off the ruler's head. This is what the Lord tells to us. And part of our obedience to him is obedience to our civil government. That's not something I like to say. This is hard for us to do. But does this mean, it is true, these are authorities that God has put in place? The president that we have in our office is the one that God has put there. Sometimes God gives us good rulers for blessing, and sometimes he gives us bad rulers for judgment. But he is sovereign over who's behind that desk. He is sovereign over who's sitting in those Senate seats or those Supreme Court chairs. This is something that he has put there. We can say all we want that that's not my president, even if it's not, it's God's. He's the one who put him there. Now, does this mean then, all right, respect to whom respect is due, be in subjection, listen to authorities, does that mean that the government has carte blanche to say and tell us to do anything that they want and we just have to go along with it? No. And there are some examples of Scripture. One of those we read in our Old Testament passage. If you remember back to Daniel chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar, the government at the time, had set up a golden idol and said, y'all are going to worship my rock. And they said, no, that's not God. We're not going to live by lies. We refuse to do it. They are not being disobedient to this passage. Instead, they are obeying God rather than man. 
See this again pop up in Acts chapter 4. When the apostles are preaching the gospel and the authorities drag them in, beat them and say, you're not going to proclaim the gospel anymore. And they say, we're going to listen to God rather than man. So when the government comes along and tells you, you need to stop spreading the gospel, you are free, indeed commanded, to ignore that order. Because we have the highest loyalty to God. And when Caesar tries to step into God's sphere, you can ignore him. When the government tells you to affirm a lie, you are free to ignore them. They say you must celebrate homosexual marriage or you must say that gender is not a fact. We don't live by lies. We live by the truth. It's here in his word. So to recap, here these religious leaders, and we're going back to Luke 20, these spies are trying to put Jesus in between a rock and a hard place. They try to divide up loyalty as an either-or question. And God affirms in this one thing, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, that there is a legitimate sphere that government operates and that we are loyal to inasmuch as they obey God. When they tell us to do something that is contrary to God's word, then you can ignore them. But is that everything? Is that all that we can do? To get really practical for a moment, we've been dealing with a lot of different government orders lately. And there has been no small amount of unifying discussion over social media <laughs> about how best to respond to it. We don't have clear answers, from the scripture anyway. You can't point to a scripture that will tell you whether or the constitutionality of this event or another. So what do we do? Is it possible for the government to overreach? And is it possible for us as Christians to resist? Turn with me, if you will, to Acts. Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22. I'm starting up in verse 22, but let me give you the story up to this point, the story so far. Paul has been preaching to the people and has been telling them about Jesus. And he has been saying that I have been sent here to preach the gospel to Israel, but Israel is refusing, so now I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Well, at this moment, the crowd loses their mind. They're ready to cancel him on Twitter and drag him and kill him. <laughs> Things have changed a lot in the last few years. Threats are much smaller now. Anyway, so the Roman government hates disorder. They see Paul as instigating a riot, so they drag him in. Now, Rome was not opposed to enhanced interrogation methods. And they bring him here, verse 24. The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. So they've stretched Paul out to make the whips hurt as much as possible before they've even answered any questions, before they've even decided if Paul's the one in the wrong. And Paul looks at the centurion, verse 25. When they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful 
for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? He said, Yes. The tribune answered, Well, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and he had had him bound. What's going on here? A lot of Roman politics and policy happening. In essence, if you were a Roman citizen, either by birth or by payment, you were not allowed to be brought in and flogged without having heard a charge yet. To put it in our modern terms, this was unconstitutional in the Roman government. Now, we could have said, well, Paul, as you're going to write here in just a little bit, Romans 13, be subject to the authorities. They want to whip you. Don't you mean that you just have to let them? Paul didn't seem to take that approach. Where there was legal means for him to defend himself, he did. And when there was opportunity to call, on, to call the government out on its wrongdoing and transgressing of its own rules, he could. He does this again in Acts chapter 25 when he appeals to Caesar using the legal means, legal means, of resisting unfair treatment. The same thing exists for us today. I don't think that it is disloyal to God to use the legal means that we have been given. And we here in this country have been given a lot. We have a lot of rights and a lot of freedoms to appeal to a lot of sketchy things the government has been doing. It's not as to say, well, we just have to lie back and just let them do whatever it is that they want to do. But we can use these legal means. Now, don't hear me say, when I say we are allowed to resist, the Bible nowhere in the New Testament allows for violent revolution. Jesus didn't look at the person who had the Roman coin and said, yes, this is an idolatrous Roman system. The idea that I'm setting up is for you to overthrow this government and set up your own. It's not here. Violent revolution is not the way of the Christian. That's hard. Because violent revolution is us taking the chance to flex our power. Guns are powerful. But God is far more so. In the Old Testament, as one scholar pointed out, whenever God wants to cast judgment on a nation, he uses another nation. He doesn't call us to violently overthrow. So, what do we learn in all this? What do we take away? One is that there is a legitimate place for government. It's something that God has indeed set up. Might not be your president, might not be my president, but it's God's. It's put those people in authority over us. And as long as they are not asking us to sin, as long as they are not overstepping their own boundaries, we are called to obey. We don't get to leave our Christianity behind when we go to our politics. We don't become Christians on Sunday and then become pragmatists when we get into the ballot box. Our loyalties to God follows us in all places, even into our politics. 
So when we interact with the political world, we do so Christianly. We do so wisely. And we do so deeply informed. We don't read a meme off of Facebook and then form our opinion based on that. We are to be educated in what's happening and to form a wise opinion about how best to go forward. That's how we honor God in doing these things. And when we encounter those that we disagree with, those same rules apply Christianly, wisely, deeply informed. Ultimately, we are not called to convert someone to our view of politics, but our goal is to bring people to heaven and make them citizens of the king. And that's where I want to end. And I, if we get nothing else, I want us to focus on this last bit, which is, and render to God the things that are God's. This gives a deep significance to all that we do. Even as we're rendering to seize the things that were Caesar's, as we're sighing over our 1040s and turning our W-2s into the government, we can do so knowing we're obeying God in this moment. It brings significance even to our taxes. But we must never forget, as we're going about all of these things, that we are rendering to God as we do so. When we come to our leaders and we don't like them and it comes time to pray for them and you don't want to, render to God the things that are God's and pray. When we realize and look to our own souls, we realize we're owned by God. You see, we want to live life the way that we want to. We want to be our own government and sit on our own thrones and say, I do what my life with I want to do with it. I'm the captain of my own destiny. I can do whatever I want to do. I don't care what the Bible says about this, that, or the other thing. That's our natural bent. It's called sin. It's resisting what God wants us to do and doing the things that God tells us not to do. And what he tells us here is render to God the things that are God's, including your soul. Your life is God's. He created it. He breathed into your nostrils the breath of life. God didn't just like wind up a clock, step back, and it's just the natural process that's unfolding and that you were formed based on natural laws. God was intimately involved in your births. The shape of your ear was determined by God. He owns every part of you. So render those things to God. All of your life. It's harder than taxes. Taxes come up once a year or quarterly. This comes up every second of every day, rendering to God. Now, if you're honest, you'll say, I can't. What do you mean I have to live every portion of my life for Jesus? What do you mean I have to be perfectly obedient to every single command, thought, word, and deed? That's impossible. And you're right. That's why Jesus came to die. 
That's why Jesus came to earth and lived this life that we're reading about in this passage is because you couldn't be the, the citizen of heaven you're supposed to be. So Jesus lived it for you. Jesus rendered to God all that you should have rendered to God and died on the cross paying for your sins, what you should have paid. As we saw in our new members class earlier today, the wages of sin is death. The payment, the result of our sins, anything that we do that's against God results in death, both physical and spiritual. That's the death that Jesus took on the cross. Not just stopping breathing, but dying spiritually. Taking all of the anger that was justly aimed at us and took it all on himself. And now, he offers you a gift, saying, I have rendered to God everything. Trust in me. Be loyal to me. Follow me. This is Christ. That's what he offers you today. How do we get a gift like that? One is to admit you don't deserve it. Saying, I have sinned. I've done bad things, and I will continue to do bad things unless God helps me. And come to him and say, I have sinned. I need your forgiveness. I can't get to heaven by turning my life around or reforming or anything like that. We've already broken all of the laws. Doing good things doesn't change the fact that we've broken the laws. We say, Jesus, I need your record I need your tax form, all renderings paid in full. I need your riches. And then turn from those sins. Turn, this is the word that we use in church, it means repent. Going in this direction, and then turn around and go towards something else. It's turning away from sins and not to your, you being a good person, but turning away and looking to God and living the way that he calls you to. That's the ultimate takeaway from this. Yes, as part of that new life, it's sometimes being obedient to a government that we wish we didn't have to. Paying taxes when we don't want to. Following orders when we don't want to. But this is all taken in into a much bigger thing. It's not just about being a good citizen of America. It's about being a good citizen of heaven. And bringing all of that significance to every act that you have here in this life. Jesus has control of your politics. We aren't supposed to think about what the reigning political parties think about an issue. We're to think about what Jesus says about the issue. And apply what he says to our lives. That's what we have in this passage today. So, render to God your life. As part of that, you will render to Caesar too. There are times where Caesar steps out of line. We're called to bring to Caesar the gospel, to call them away from that. And then whatever happens to us from there, is what God is in control of. God controls governments. He turns the hearts of kings. 
We pray to him and we wait for him and we trust in him. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you so much for this passage. Help us to apply this to our political discourse, our Thanksgiving tables, and our interactions online. Help us to see that we are yours. And I pray that for all those who are here, regardless of political affiliation, I pray that every single one of these people who are in this room would come to know you. Whether they're loyal to a government on earth or not, that they would be loyal to you. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.